there was a little confusion with the dideoxys in, a, in one sense, and I, I, you'll have to some to some of these things. You're going to, like the PCR. You're going to have to sort of sit down and actually think about it. But the principle of the dideoxys, if we were making a, a chain of beads that had a hook on one end and a, and a little hole at the other, and we were joining these things together, we could make obviously a chain that went on, and then we could hook another one in, and so on. And if we had a bunch of beads like this, but every now and then we, we threw in a very small number that didn't have the hook on the end. Anytime this, if this particular chain were elongating and we put on one of, the, one, of, one of these things, the chain would stop because you haven't got anywhere to join onto it. You add a dideoxy into a polymerase reaction a chain that gets the dideoxy doesn't have anything to join on the end, and that will stop. If we only added this, the entire reaction would stop, and everyone would come at the first time a dideoxy got incorporated. The trick is to put a little bit in, so a few of the molecules stop, everything keeps going. The next time a dideoxy gets incorporated, the chain will stop there. and out of this, you will generate a family of, of, of polymers that are, are of different lengths. They will, each one will terminate with a, with a dideoxynucleotide. And if the dideoxynucleotide we used in that particular reaction was, let's say, dideoxyATP, that means that there will be an A was the last nucleotide added to every one of those. And we can separate these on the basis of size. And if I ran them out on a, on a gel, I'd see some, something like that. And that would tell me that when that polymerase was coming along, that was the first time it saw an A. A few stopped there, it polymerized a few more. Then it hit another, put in another A, put in some other things, and so on. And that by itself wouldn't tell us the sequence. But if I did that reaction four times in a row, then I could tell. In the old days, they didn't used to do dyes. We just did P32 uh, on, as a label. And then you'd run the four reactions side by side. And this would be with dideoxy ATP. You'd see a pattern like that. And maybe with dideoxy DTTP, you'd see something like this. And when you got the rest of them, then you'd kind of end up working out what the, sequ what the sequence was by looking across the four lanes. This business of using the dyes is just a one more step up in the engineering side that enables the thing to be done automatically. And it's pretty well explained in your, in your textbooks. OK. Um, PCR. Someone was confused as to why we didn't just let the cell do it. Well, the cell does a great job. But if you're, an in, if you're a molecular biologist trying to understand the basic basis of life, or you're a bioengineer, and you biological engineer, and you want to produce something, you need to get hold of a particular piece of DNA. Or if you're a forensic investigator and you've got a tiny, tiny sample of human DNA and you want to know who, whose it is, you have to make more of it. And that's what PCR is, is all about. Uh, so I'm going to switch just over to the net for a minute. I think I, this first site, I just want to show you something, what, how the sequence, uh, what, what a um, how somebody functions in a lab now with all these genomes out there. And then I, I'm going to show you a little animation for PCR that'll help. 
So if you just go to Google and type NCBI, that's the National Center for Biotechnology Information, and the Dolan Learning Center is a, is a center that Cold Spring Harbor Laboratory has set up to teach people about DNA. So, um, let me just see here. So, whoops, that's not going to work. So let's go to... Okay, let's, here's, whoops, is this going to size on us? Let's see. Well, okay, let's find out what happens. Ah. Okay, so here, here is this National Center for, data, for Biotechnology Information. It's, there's all sorts of things you can search for. And I'm not expecting you to know us. I just want to sort of give you a demo for if I was sitting in my office, this sort of thing I could do easily. I, I'm, rather than sequence, looking for DNA sequence, I'm going to look for the translated, uh, the sequence of the protein that's encoded by the gene, where the computer's gone through and used the genetic code to tell me the sequence of a protein. I told you about sequencing a, the, a mismatch repair gene back in the 80s. Uh, it was called MUTE-S, and I'll put in Walker GC. It'll probably, hopefully, get us to the thing. And there, the very first hit is DNA repair uh, protein MUTE-S from Salmonella tifimurium. That's the one I sequenced, so I'll just go to that. It, it has various ways of displaying the sequence. I'm going to switch to FAST-A, which is a very easy way to see it. And now what you see is the sequence of the protein using a one-letter code where one letter stands for each amino acid. K is lysine, A is alanine, and so on. I'm just going to copy that, that piece of sequence. Okay, so that's the bacterial gene for mismatch repair. The time I put that in the database, it wasn't anything else like it, except for the gene that was from Streptococcus pneumoniae that I'd found out someone else was sequencing by phoning around in the field. I'm going to go back to the main site, and I'm going to use a program called BLAST, which lets you search the entire database. Um, I'll use a protein-protein BLAST. I'm going to take a protein sequence, and I'm going to ask what else is out there in terms of protein sequences. I'll paste in this bacterial uh, sequence, and then I'm going to, if I can manage this thing, let's see. Hmm. Let's see if I can get myself down here. Okay, over here it'll probably do. Um, so I'm going to limit it to, let's just search the human genome. That's all we got to do. And what, what did I have to do to get this thing to fit? Right? Or, which button? The, okay, let me just see what... Move to the right. Do you want can, can come up here for just a sec? Maybe you can help me get this uh, computer limited here, apparently. Oh, that one. Okay. Okay, great. So why do we not uh, try this again? Sorry about this. See if we can get this thing to go. I have what? When you have 
Yeah, that works. That, that's okay, though. That, that should be fine. Try again. See if I can get this thing to work. Okay, so now it, so it's got it. Now it'll it'll tell me it's it's searching all the sequence that's out there, and there's just an unbelievable amount of sequence. That's how long it took. It's showing me here a, a diagrammatic representation of the things. Then I can see that the very first hit was mutas homolog three from humans, and if I go down here, we can actually see a, an alignment of the bacterial gene on the top line, and the line just below it is the sequence of that particular human homolog, and you can see in between all the things that are in common, and particularly down at the C terminus of the protein, you can see there's very strong conservation. Now, may, you may not think that's that impressive, but remember for every one of those positions there's 20 possibilities. So if you get that many in a row, and that's the same gene, basically, and when you take the structure, the structure is going to be very, very similar, and they, it does mismatch repair in both. But that's, um, there's a, uh, just a, to try and give you an idea of, of how you do sequence now, because with all these genomes done, you do the vast majority of it by computer rather than some other way. Um, let's just, uh, I want to take you and show you this, uh, say, Dolan, DNA learning. If you go there, the second thing is a set of animations. Go to the animations. There's one on polymerase chain reaction. And I'm going to just show you this because this is, this is, this is a nice little... Let's see if we can... Oh, Lord, let's see if I can get this thing to, to center. Okay, we'll have to see whether this is going to work. Okay, so here's the principle of, um, you can go do this at your leisure, but the idea is to heat the DNA up, the strands come apart. Then we're going to take these two little primers, not promoters, which I think someone was confused about, a little piece of DNA that's complementary, one of this, and we'll anneal them. Then we add a DNA polymerase, you know what happens, then we, ex we extend those primers. That was the first cycle. Do the same thing again, go to the second cycle. This was what I was drawing on the board the other day. Now we're gonna denature the DNA. Strands come apart. Let's anneal the primers. Let's add, let the polymerase extend them. Let's go to the third cycle. Denature the DNA. Anneal the primers. Extend the primers. And now for the first time, we've got what we were shooting for. We have a double-stranded copy of just the uh, DNA that was defined between those, by those, uh, by those uh, primers. Um, okay, I think this gets, actually, I'm going to go back one. Okay. 
if you go then to this amplification graph, what, what they're doing here is they're showing you what happens as you do successive cycles. So at the first, um, oh, it's down here, just a minute. If we do the first cycle, we end up uh, with two DNA copies. That's just plotting what I showed you. Next one, we have four. We haven't yet got to this target sequence. By the next cycle, we now have two copies of the target sequence plus these other things. But if you keep going, let's say by the time we're at uh, seven cycles, the number of targets is up to 114. The number of DNA copies is 128. But if we keep, if we, um, keep going like this, we'll find out that the target copies become uh, the vast majority of the, um, of the sequences that are in there. So by the time you're up at the you know, 30, 30 cycles or something like that, it's become, there's only a handful of the, of the original things. They're almost all. And I think that, that I hope, will, will help some of you who might have had uh, problems with understanding the... Um, the PCR. Okay, so what I'm going to do is I'm going to tell you just a few more things about um, what you can do with recombinant DNA, this recombinant DNA technology, because it's just so powerful and I can only sort of give you a few ideas and show you a few variations. But most of these things are in are just taking principles that you've already learned as part of the basic biology I've been trying to tell you, and then using them like an engineer to achieve some applied purpose. Now, for example, suppose I wanted to produce a human protein and try and produce it in a, uh, in a bacterium. That would be great. I could take the one gene, I could grow a fermenter load of E. coli, and if I got it right, then I would need, I'd be able to make a lot of this protein instead of trying to isolate it from some human source or something like that. There's a couple of problems. We talked about them. One is the problem of promoters. One of the, another problem is that human DNA would have introns in it. And bacteria doesn't recognize um, the uh, human promoters. It wouldn't start to make an RNA in the right place and it doesn't know what to do about getting rid of the splicing out the intron. So well, let's address the, the intron first. There's a way of handling that that's quite easy, and that's what it's called to make a cDNA library. So if we have DNA, and then we get the RNA, if we get the RNA copy of a, um, including these intron sequences, and then the, what happens is this RNA splicing we talked about. And what we get out of that would be an mRNA uh, in which the introns have been removed. So Eukaryotic cells, my cells, know how to express the genes, so they make the RNA. They know how to get rid of the introns. So if I were to isolate a preparation of uh, a messenger RNA 
that's been spliced from me or from you or anything, what we would have is a population of RNA molecules that don't have introns anymore. Anybody remember any way we could get from RNA back to DNA? Reverse transcriptase. So if we made a, if we used reverse transcriptase, that, that uh, protein that David Baltimore discovered in, retro, in uh, viruses and which uh, the retroviruses use, now we would have a single-stranded DNA uh, copy of the mRNA, and then we could use an ordinary DNA polymerase to get ourselves to double-stranded DNA. We'd be doing, in essence, exactly what one of these retroviruses does. This would give us what's known as a cDNA library, where the genes don't have indrons anymore. So if I wanted to get at one of my proteins, that, uh, one of my genes, and think about expressing it in E. coli, what I would do is go looking in a cDNA library, using the sort of approaches we've done, trying to find my gene of interest. Because if I used the cDNA library, now it would be just like a bacterial gene. You could see the ATG start. You could get out your handy little genetic code, and you can walk along and read out the sequence of the protein. So that's, that's part of what you need to do if you wanted to make, a, say, a human protein inside of a bacterium. The other one, uh, which we talked about, was since the promoters are not a universal language, what E. coli RNA polymerase sees is different than what human RNA polymerase sees as a start site. I would have to add in uh, a promoter that would drive the expression of this open, open reading frame if I wanted it to work in E. coli. And that's, that's fairly easily done, too. The ge general thing that's for this is called expression cloning. And it would be more or less the same sort of uh, idea. We'd have a vector that had a cloning site. It says an origin of replication, and maybe there's a selectable marker, such as a drug resistance. That's the basic kind of... vector that I talked about um, before. However, if I clone in a piece of DNA into that, it has to have a promoter that can be read in, in the organism we're working with um, because we haven't, it's just got whatever it, nature gave it, whatever promoter it would be in front of that. But if I were to now, into this vector, put an E. coli promoter right there. Now if I just downstream of that put any open reading frame, then the human protein, let's say, which we've gotten rid of the introns, or the human gene minus its introns, which you got from the cDNA library, now when the bacterial uh, polymerase came along, it would be copying, making a messenger RNA for a human protein, and we could get it out of that. And the beauty of that is, um, suppose we used the, the, took the front part of the LAC operator, 
we would have a regulated promoter. It would be just everything we studied about lack if we were to starve it for, you know, we'd have to get rid of glucose and then if we added lactose or some kind of synthetic inducer, we could turn the promoter on and off. So you could grow an entire fermenter load of bacteria uh, without expressing the gene. And then once you had the bacteria all grown up, you could throw in something that would, to, it would normally induce the expression of the lac regulatory system. And now instead of making beta-galactosidase, instead it would make the protein that you're interested in. You with, you with me? It's, it's very pretty. And in fact, so much of what you can see in this, um, these really basic studies, since LAC was one of the system was one of the first to really be worked out in detail, we use its parts. And many of there are many vectors around now that have exactly that. They have the LAC promoter, and you can turn things on and off um, in in a regulated way. So you not only provide a promoter that works in the organism, but it also gives you a measure of control. There's another very cute trick, and what we've done sort of here was we took, um, say, the gene for LAC, the promoter for LAC and um, in the regulatory region. I'll, I'll use R to stand for regulatory region, and then this would be the LAC-Z sequence. And what we've really done is we've taken... And it, a gene from somewhere else, let's call it gene X, that had a promoter from uh, gene X. And in essence, what I just described is cutting each of them here. And now we take the regulatory promoter region from LAC, and we put down below it, we put gene X. And now we've got this gene we're interested, whose product we're interested in producing in a fermenter under the control of the LAC operon. Well, there's another kind of thing we could do. We could do it the other way around. We could take LAC-Z, which makes beta-galactosidase, and we could put it under the promoter regulatory region of gene X. Well, what will happen then if that construct is sitting in a cell any time that the cell decides to make gene X, Instead, it will make beta-galactosidase, which is really easy to assay for. And um, the kind, so this sort of strategy, you use something like LAC-Z as a reporter. In this case, beta-galactosidase Synthesis, which you can assay for. Reports when the promoter of gene X is functioning. This reporter gene is now has the regulatory characteristics that are imposed upon it by that particular promoter. So there's this, this um, picture that I've showed you a couple of, this little movie I showed you early on. We've seen it a couple of times. In this case, the reporter is green fluorescent protein. 
what Barbara Meyer, who made this lab, who made this particular construct, did was they took green, the gene for green fluorescent protein, which started out in a jellyfish, as you may remember, and the protein folds up and it ends up being fluorescent, uh, so we can tell when it's expressed very easily. And in this case, um, you'll notice that not all the genes in the, um, not the whole worm isn't uh, glowing. And so it's under the control of a promoter regulatory region that is expressed only in specific body parts. And so um, you can see where that promoter is working by just looking at the worm. In the case of something like the, the mouse that we talked about, it's pretty uniform expression, at least in the skin. So that was probably, in that case, the green fluorescent protein was probably put in a promoter that's expressed in probably most of the cells in the body, at least certainly all the ones in the mouse cell. I don't know the details of that. Ditto over here. It was probably something that was expressed in most of the body cells. But you also could have put something that was just, just expressed in some very little bit. So depending on how you do the construct, you can do a lot of, there are a lot of different things that people can do in this. Um, okay. Uh, in this sort of thing. The, the last, okay, another one more category that comes out of this sort of thing is if we have a, a gene of some type, and I don't know what it does, but I'd like to find out. You know, you guys at least as budding geneticists now know what we'd like to do. We'd probably like to just disable that gene very specifically, and then look at the live organism and see what happens. And the principle is the same whether you're doing it in an E. coli or a mouse. It gets a little more complicated for technical reasons doing it in a mouse, but the idea is, is exactly the same. And here's the strategy. So we'll just take a piece of DNA from the, from the organism, and sitting in here is this open reading frame we've seen. We don't know what its function is. We think if I could knock it out, get rid of its function, I'll look at the organism. Maybe I can make a guess then. So if we were to cut the, the gene somewhere with a restriction site, and then we were to take, for example, a gene encoding a drug resistance or something like that and then insert it at that point, what we would end up with is this piece of the organism's DNA. The first part of gene X then a drug resistance, then the last part of gene X and some more um, some more sequence from the from the organism. Now this would be we'd have this In a test tube, we could do it by these kind of recombinant DNA manipulations that we have. Now, what would happen if I were to put now, let's keep it with bacteria where it's easy to see. If I were to take that piece of DNA and put it inside a living cell, what's going to happen? Well, let's, let's make this say, here's the end of it. That's all we got. Well, inside the living cell, we, of course, have the entire genome, and then we'd come to this part where we'd have 
gene X. Then we'd have this going. That'd be the whole thing. Well, this particular piece doesn't have an origin of replication. It's not joined to a vector. It's just sitting there. So if the cell divides, it's not going to get replicated. So if I select for a drug resistance uh, that's on that piece of DNA, it, unless something happens, I'm not going to get a drug-resistant bacteria. But you do know a way that this thing could join to an origin of replication. It could join to the origin of replication that's on the bacterial chromosome. And the way it could do it would be by undergoing genetic recombination over here, because this DNA is exactly the same as on, on that side. And over here, it's the same thing. This DNA is the same as that side. So if that genetic exchange happened, what would happen, even if it happened rarely, was this piece of DNA would replace the piece of DNA that's in there. I'd be able to tell it was there because I'd just select for drug resistance. And even if it only happened in one in uh, 500,000 cells, it wouldn't matter because up would grow the colony that now has the drug in the middle of gene X. Gene X is, is gone. And I could look at the organism, if it's alive anyway, and see if it has a phenotype. If it's an essential gene, that strategy obviously won't work. And when people do the more complicated thing of doing this, this kind of uh, experiment to make a transgenic mouse, it takes about a year to, make, to go from the starting our, um, DNA manipulations all the way to the live mouse with the disrupted gene. And sometimes what they find after spending half of your PhD is that that was an essential gene. And there's no live mouse. Or it made it two days into being an embryo, and then it, then it tanked at that point. Um, but this, again, is you can see, I talked about going back and forth between gene and protein and trying to figure out function. This is, I, I can, all I can sort of do is give you the flavor of what's going on. But one sort of overarching thing I hope you'll remember as we're going through this is DNA sequencing, PCR, all these kinds of manipulations we're talking about are just exploiting these basic uh, cellular components that we learned about studying how does DNA replicate, how is information coded, how do genes get expressed. Um, how does, how does genetic information get sorted between cells? It's simply applying those relatively uh, well-understood tools or, or sort of biological principles and parts that we learned about and now using them as tools in an engineering way. And it just completely transformed the way um, biology has been done in the last couple of decades. And it's just, as I say, it's going, things are changing so, so fast. It's, it's, uh, it's almost breathtaking. So the last little bit of sort of technique-oriented stuff I want to just at least make sure I've mentioned are what are called microarrays. Or you often hear these referred to As, as DNA chips. Um, the principle here is this is a way that lets you ask whether 
whole, whether a gene, not only whether a, one gene is being expressed or not under a particular condition, whether it's RNA is being made, and in most cases that means making protein, or whether it's off or whether it's at some intermediate level. A microarray lets you do that experiment with many, many, many genes at once. And here's the principle. You take a, some, some surface, and there'll be a bunch of, if you will, little sites on this surface, on this chip, or whatever. And what will go f to be, be, be attached here would be a little piece of DNA from, from gene 1. I mean, let's say maybe 100 nucleotides. That would be far more than enough to make it absolutely specific. Uh, that thing could only hybridize to a messenger RNA from gene 1 and not from anything else. And this one then would have from gene 2, this one from gene 3, and so on. Then if we were to take a messenger RNA preparation from a, say, an organism, if it's a little one, or maybe a tissue, or something like that, it can, you can, anywhere you could isolate uh, RNA from, and then we'll label it in some kind of way. And we could label it with uh, radioactivity, we could label it with dyes, it's usually done with dyes, and there are a variety of variations on this. It, those are sort of technical details how you do it. But here's the principle. Let's just, for the moment, just consider that it's got a label on it. So if we take the messenger RNA and we take this little chip that has samples of, in, in the extreme, it could be a sample of every single gene that's in the genome of that organism. And we take this labeled DNA, uh, labeled RNA, we, actually what we usually do is to use this to make a labeled cDNA preparation, which would be a copy of each one of these things, just that's a technically easy way to get label into it. But what we'd have is the, if a gene was on, its messenger RNA would be on, and we'd have a bunch of stuff corresponding to gene one that had label on it. And if we give it a chance, the, that will then hybridize here, and there'll be some way of detecting this label. If gene two was off in that sample, there won't be any hybridization, there won't be any signal. And you sort of see in principle what you're doing is you're interrogating each gene in the extreme, each gene in the organism under some condition. Is it on? Is it off? And if you did various samples, you could see, or maybe it's in an intermediate level, and so on. So the chips look like that. 50, 100,000 genes, perhaps, on 
something like that. These things are really small. Here's a, here's a sort of a display of a simple one, and this is one where they're taking RNA. Uh, the samples are from two conditions, and one's labeled with a dye that's green, and one's labeled with a dye that's red. And if you get equal amounts, it looks yellow. It's sort of so they mix the two things together, and if the if the gene is the same under two conditions, it would be yellow. Under one condition, if uh, if a gene was on in condition one, it would be green, and if it was on and off in two, it'd be back and forth. So, um, I, without trying to get lost in the in the technical details right now, which doesn't matter, the principle of this thing is that you can take you can sort of by making a preparation of RNA then you can use these DNA chips and say, is each gene on and off? Or if I switch conditions, who comes on and off? So it's a little like, I think of it this way. It's like having, you know, I said, if I got, all right, who's on today? And a number of hands would go up or something, and the rest you would be off. But I come back on Monday, and I say, who does something or other? And a different set of you would put up hands. And I could just, what I'm kind of looking at are the changes between that. And where this is, the sort of thing where this has been so powerful, for example, is there are kinds of cancers for which there was a treatment, but it was only 20% successful. And when they started, when people started to study these cancers uh, and then look to see what genes were on, what they realized was even though physicians had named, given these cancers a particular name, if you looked in the which genes were being expressed, they fell into two classes, class A and class B. And what they then realized was that the treatment they were using was 100% effective of tumors of class A and wasn't doing anything for the tumors of class B. The physician couldn't tell the difference between these two types of tumors, but a microarray could say it. And once you've had that kind of insight, if somebody has a tumor of the type A, you can use the treatment, it's very effective, and of course what people were trying to do now would be to develop an equivalently effective treatment for something, for the, the tumor of, of type B. So again, we have so little time in this uh, class, we could, I could go on basically <laughs> for ages. There's, there's a, the output of a, of a real sort of DNA chip. You can see things are very dense and uh, the great cleverness in, in doing these things. People now even use the technology that goes with laser jet printers uh, to actually synthesize little pieces of either DNA or protein starting on the, a little spot on, the, on each um, on the membrane or, or on the chip or whatever. And you put on one nucleotide, then you put on the next and the next and the next. And you can sequence it using sort of technology that's already around for inkjet printers and that kind of thing. So here you see a fusion of different types of engineering. Okay, so the last um, thing I'm gonna tell you about is a little bit about the immune system. Um, we've run into this. This was a movie that some of you <laughs> liked. It got the biggest awe, I think, of the last part of the course anyway. And what we're seeing here is a white blood cell pushing aside some red blood cells, which are stationary, and chasing a bacterium. It's obvious that it can, can, uh, can trace it. Uh, there's able to recognize some things, and at some point then it, it took it up. And the principle of, of what happened there was this white blood cell had a, had a capacity to 
recognize the bacteria, then bind to it, and then its membrane, this is the membrane, and this is a white blood cell. There's many types of these, but, and it pinches the membrane off, so you have the bacterium, this is the bacterium, and it's inside a little membrane compartment. Looks like the bacteria is in a little soap bubble. And the principle of what happens is the bacterium has another soap bubble that's full of poison. And it's just, if you took two soap bubbles and you push them together, you know what happens, then they'll fuse and you'll get a bigger soap bubble. And that's, in essence, at a cons what, how these white blood cells would normally kill bacteria. They would bring together these two compartments. Now you'd have a bacterium and a poison within a white blood cell, and the bacterium would get, would get killed. And we, we, sh we talked about this, uh, how bacteria fought back. That was a streptococcus that has a capsule. And the capsule, by having polysaccharide in the outside, prevents the um, uh, white blood cell from being able to grab hold of some feature of the, uh, of the bacterium and then start this process of killing it. And when I told you the story of how DNA was founded, it, found it was people studying pneumonia, if you remember, with streptococcus. And the, if you had the phage had a, excuse me, if the streptococcus had a capsule, um, then it would, it, the people would get very sick. And after five or six days, there'd be a crisis where they either lived or they died. And what would happen in that time is that the thing I wanted, the last thing I want to tell you about, the adaptive, what's called the adaptive immune system would have generated special recognition molecules called antibodies that would have learned to recognize the capsule of that bacterium. And once those were there, now it, the, this white blood cell would be able to capture the bacterium because it could, the, the antibodies could uh, give it a hand in recognizing there was something there that needed to be uh, needed to be killed. So I want to just what I'll do is the the way this adaptive immune system works it, it's almost like science fiction, and I'll tell you the molecular basis of it. Um, the key insight came from Susumu, Susumu Tanagawa, who got another member of the MIT faculty in biology and also runs the PicoR Center, um, who got a Nobel Prize for understanding the basis of the diversity within the immune system. But what I just want to do for the moment is just sort of point out the key features of this, adapt, what's called the adaptive immune system. And this is one of the reasons that we're able to live. And even though we get sick from time to time and we've all had one thing or another uh, get us probably for a little while uh, during this semester, the reason we aren't sick all the time uh, and the reason we recover when we get sick is we have what's called an adapted Im immune system. What happens in people who get infected by the HIV uh, virus is that the cells that it lives in and destroys are key players in your adaptive immune system. And so people don't die from the uh, HA1V infection itself. They die because lots of things that we just bacteria or fun fungi or whatever, things we have on us and we live with all the time suddenly become killers because we can't 
you lack the immune system that fights them off. So this so-called adaptive immune system is, is absolutely um, amazing. So several features. It's got an incredible diversity. There's a, a general word that's used to describe all sorts of chemical entities, and it's called an antigen. can recognize many, many different, what are called antigens. And at the moment, I think you can just think of it as some kind of chemical entity. It could be a carbohydrate. It could be a little piece of an organic molecule. It could be a few amino acids on a protein. But it's something that's potentially capable of being recognized by your immune system. So there are many, many, many things, and the amazing thing is I can go into a lab and synthesize a molecule that's never been seen on this earth before and challenge some, somebody with it, and you'll produce an immune uh, response will be mounted against that, even though it's never been on earth before. It's also the specificity. It, it is completely amazing. If I were to take a protein uh, and then, let's say, put on a fennel ring with a, a methyl there, inject it into someone, the immune system would figure out how to recognize this thing with the, the fennel ring and the methyl. But the, the response it generated, it would, it would see this but not, let's say, that. If I wanted to get an immune system, something with the methyl here, I'd have to put that into the organism and let the immune system figure out a response. So the specificity is at the same kind of level that you're used to here. If restriction enzymes can read different sequences in DNA or uh, protein can tell one, one optical isomer of a small molecule from another. It's this fitting of complementary shapes. So what the immune system is all about is figuring out how to get a complementary shape somehow that's able to recognize essentially any kind of chemical shape and, and structure you can think of. It's just mind-blowing. And you can already see right from the um, sort of beginning where the sort of fundamental problem people could see from the beginning. It sounds like we would need a genome that's, you know, infinitely big, full of things that we're ready to recognize anything. And so one of the real surprises, and now we know, is there's 20,000 genes or so in the human genome. There can't possibly be a zillion genes that each one is specific for one of these structures. So how is that done? There had to be some underlying principle that we had to learn, and that was the big one of the big challenges in immune for a long, immune system for a long time. Another one was that if you have an organism that has this uh, capacity, and you can recognize anything, why don't you do yourself in? Because you're f you yourself are full of entities that could, in principle, generate an immune system. So one of the other things that had, has to be 
the immune system had to deal with was avoiding self-recognition. If you're able to recognize anything, how do I don't avoid killing my own, my own cells? So that is another really fundamental uh, problem in this immune system. This is exciting. Are we, <laughs> we could all stop and watch, but I think I'll just try and keep soldiering along for the last minute or so. So one other feature was that was interesting about this immune system is it has a memory. And that is, I'll tell you what, more about antibodies at the beginning of next lecture, but these are a kind of molecule that's able to recognize these different entities, and you've all heard the term in your ordinary life. But if we look at the, um, the level of antibodies that are made in the body, if the first exposure to an antigen, they'll get some kind of response that, that comes up upon the first exposure. But then if some, and this is time here, if we let there be some delay, could be even into years, and then we give a second exposure. The antigen, the response is much higher, and this could be a log scale. So it could be dramatically higher. So what was the basis of that? How did that work? You see right there the principle of vaccination in the sense that if, if you ever got chicken pox as a kid, You've been, your body's learned how to make antibodies. If you ever see it again, it amounts a really big immune response. If you want to have a disease like, there's something like tetanus that you haven't seen, you go to the doctor and they squirt in a bit of this stuff that doesn't make you sick, but it gives you the initial immune response. Then if you actually ever step on a rusty nail, you'll get a very powerful response against uh, tetanus. And that's sort of underlying... Uh, the principle of, of vaccination is this concept of memory. And we'll pick that up on uh, Wednesday. So have a great uh, Patriots Day weekend. <laughs>